Good morning. It's great to have you here with us uh, this morning. My name is Nathan. I'm the campus pastor here at White Oaks Ross Township campus. And as Darren indicated, we're kicking off a new series today. Uh, if you're a guest with us, maybe this is one of your first times here. I think uh, you picked a really exciting time to be here with us. Um, some of the, some, for some of you, this is going to be an exciting next uh, several week journey. For some of you, you're going to be like, are you kidding me? I think for all of us, we're really going to enjoy walking through the New Testament book of Romans. All right, so the last, the next time I will say that, or the time that I'll say, hey, we're done with our series, it's going to be Thanksgiving weekend. So we're going to be in the book of Romans for a while, okay? It's going to be a journey. Um, I think you're going to really enjoy this. It, God's got a lot to say to us in this book. It's some believe, actually, that um, Romans is possibly the greatest book in the New Testament. All right. Now, the New Testament of the Bible being the portion where Jesus is born forward, okay? And Romans is a letter that is written. And so for us to kind of hear or read, okay, that some believe Romans to be the greatest book in the New Testament, there's a lot in there, um, it's going to cause us to kind of really lean into it. So I want to set up the scene for us as we, as we begin to dive into this letter today, Okay. Paul wrote the book of Romans, okay? Um, many of the books in the New Testament were letters written to churches. Paul writes the book of Romans to the Christians living in Rome in approximately AD 56. So about 23, 24 years after Jesus was seen alive, after he was dead, all right, he was seen alive, Paul is writing this letter to the churches gathered in Rome. Now, from what we understand about what churches looked like in the first century, they didn't meet in buildings like this, right? Which you may, you may know. So it's very possible Paul's letter was passed around to multiple house churches in the city of Rome. And we're talking about 10, 15, if you were really wealthy, had a large house, maybe 30 or 40, 50 people gathered in clusters around the city in house churches, okay? Now, in AD 49, a few years before Paul's letter was written and sent to Rome, Emperor Claudius expelled all of the Jews from the city of Rome, all right? He blamed the Jews for just a series of things. It was really probably just more of an excuse or, to say, leave. So all Jews who are living in Rome had to leave, including the Christian Jews, okay? They all had to go. So, in, a ch in these house churches, they were largely run and, and comprised of Jewish believers, Jewish Christians. The churches in Rome were led by Jewish leaders, mostly made up of Jewish believers. Culturally, they felt and looked very Jewish in their practices. Now, in AD 49, when the edict came from the emperor that all Jews were expelled from Rome— who was left in the churches? Well, it was all of the non-Jewish Christians, all of the pagan, Gentile, Roman Christians. They were left into the churches. So for five years, the churches were led and comprised really mostly of pagan Roman Christians who had given up paganism and the pantheon of Roman gods and goddesses and claimed Jesus as Lord. Well, when... Claudius died in AD 54. 
five years after the edict, the Jewish Christians begin to return to Rome. Now, I don't know if you can picture this. This isn't exactly what happened, but it kind of helps. If you have teenagers in your house, or if you ever have, you really can picture this. It doesn't matter if you've never had, all right? If you left your teenagers in charge of your house for five years, and you left, okay? You left. You were gone for five years. What would you walk back into? It's not a good situation. If the house is still standing, it's not a good situation. The grass is 10 feet tall, right? There is food still in the refrigerator that were there when you left, all right? And that's unrecognizable. Um, laundry is walking around by itself in the house. It's not a pretty scene, all right? Now, that's not exactly what happened, but these Jews returned to their home, to their churches, and after five years, the church didn't look like it used to. It changed. It suddenly culturally didn't feel very Jewish anymore. It didn't, it did, the, the Jewish leaders weren't the ones leading anymore. The non-Jew Roman Christians had learned to lead. And so there was this crisis point in the Roman churches in around AD 54. It's two to three years later that Paul's letter intercepts a kind of a, a, a dilemma in the Roman churches. Okay? And the churches in Rome. The Jewish Christians were at a crossroads okay? They came into a church they didn't recognize anymore, and Paul, right, Paul's letter arrives in this crisis of self-identification. It's the first time these two people groups had to really face the issue of self-identity. The Jewish Christians had to ask themselves a really important question. Are we primarily Jewish, or are we primarily Christian? Now, the Gentile, the non-Jewish believers, actually had a question circulating in their minds and hearts as well. Are we primarily in Christian only, or must we adhere to Jewish cultural practices in order to really follow Jesus? No one knew. There was confusion amongst these two people groups of identity. Who are we who are we to be? And the reason that this book is considered by some to be the greatest book in the New Testament, one of the reasons is, is because Paul's central theme speaks to everyone. It doesn't matter race. It doesn't matter religious background. It doesn't matter cultural beliefs. Paul's letter has one theme, and it's central to everything he talks about, and it's the gospel, which means good news. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is Paul's central strong theme. We will read through chapter 1 today, and you will find when we hit chapters following in the next few weeks, that Paul is circulating the same message over and over again, and diff, coming at it from different angles. It's the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So he's speaking directly into this self-identity crisis, to the Jews and to the Roman Christians in the churches there. So let me pray with us just to open our time, and, and then we're just going to launch into it, okay? So if you would, pray with me. Father, God, uh, we give ourselves to you. We thank you for the words in, Rome, in Romans. God, it's challenging. It, it's, it's super deep. Um, it, it, your truth just, is just like oozing out of it, Father. 
And I just pray, Father, for wisdom, for openness of hearts and minds and all of us to just receive your word, God, um, and, to, and to really wrestle with, Father, how it impacts our faith. We thank you for Jesus, who is the central theme of your word, the central theme of this book, and the, and the center of our lives. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. So when we decided that we were going to talk about Romans about a year ago, um, over the next several weeks, we, we invited, um, we wanted to, something for you to really dig into. And so in your program, if you, if you open up your programs you received on your way in, inserted in there is like a bookmark. Now, I, I realized, I was just told by one of our greeters that a third of the programs actually didn't have one in there. So if you're opening a program, you're like, there is no thing in here about reading through the book of Romans or a plan. That's because we didn't want you to have one, okay? So you win. The rest of you have to read, all right? No, if you're missing one on your way out, you can grab one of the extra programs that are sitting on this table right in here in this entryway. They have them in there. Just steal one out of there. Because we wanted to give you a tool to be reading through the book of Romans, and we just really um, kind of chunked it by month. So month of September, read these chapters. Month of October, read through these chapters. Month of November, read through these chapters. So that's a tool for you to read through the book of Romans. Do that. Do it with your family, all right? Do it with your teenage kids, all right? Explain some themes with your children, all right? But get into this book. You're going to be glad you did. Also, on the flip side of that, you'll see that we have Jack Cottrell, who's like a leading theologian, especially on the book of Romans. He's going to be doing some some lectures and seminars for us over the next few months. Um, you can sign up to attend or just show up and attend. And you can see the dates there. He is like, he knows more about the book of Romans than anybody currently living. So if you want to just take a deeper dive into the book of Romans, make sure you do that. You'll be really glad that you did. So what you have in the church in Rome at the time this letter arrives, is you have two different people groups, the Jewish Christians and the Roman Christians, with two very different worldviews. And the worldviews, and ones that we're going to be really kind of pressing into today, are privilege and power. Privilege and power. Let me put it, let me lay it out that's like, like this. Power is something that the Roman Christians believed they had. It was very Roman to believe that your identity was founded on social status and honor and wisdom. The Romans were very proud of the empire they had built, and they believed that the highest level that you could attain in life is power and knowledge. And that trumped everything else. Power. That was with a Roman cultural priority. Now, for the Jews, it was something different. It was privilege. Now, for the Jewish Christians and Jews everywhere, okay, they prided themselves in their heritage. Their identity came from who their ancestors were. The great Jewish patriarchs like Abraham or King David. Well, so the Jews believed that their identity, their faith system, was founded in their ties to their heritage, to their religious rules, right? And that that gave them a connection to God that no one else could have. All right? Now, the truth is, most of us operate our lives out of those two worldviews, too. You can call it power, you can call it privilege, but this is not unrecognizable to us. Now you see, let's talk about power first. You see power trying to come out of children at a very young age, don't you? All right? 
from the first time they talk back to you, from the first time they stomp their feet and they give you that little side glance that says, I know what you just said, but guess who's getting ready to do the opposite of what you just said, all right? You've seen that. It comes out in kids. It comes out in teenagers. You're not, you think you're good at it. You won't win, by the way, teenagers, but, but you, you're good at it, all right? That's the power play. You've seen that. You probably do it to your spouse if you're married, right? There's a power play there, all right? And it's just like innate in us to assort, to assert authority. It's what gives us um, it, it, it kind of just gives us that rush. And so we will use power to press other people down. It's why we'll gossip. That's why we'll tear people down on social media. It's why we'll tear people down at work. Anything to kind of build us up and make us feel stronger and make somebody else feel less. Okay, we learn to do it at an early age and we're very, very, very good at it as adults. Okay? It's power that leads us to build many empires of our own because it makes us feel strong and in control when we can buy really nice things. Maybe nicer than maybe some other people, or maybe we can match what other people have, right? It's power to accumulate those things and kind of make a name for ourselves and kind of bring status in our community, all right? It's power, the desire for power that, that drives that. And when it comes to our faith, it's power that says, I could believe in Jesus, I can believe in God, and, and you've said this, maybe, maybe you know somebody who has, you know, but I don't need church. Like, I, I, don't, I don't need to be, you know, in a, in a life group. Like, I don't need that. Some people, that's their thing. Like, I don't, you know, or, or my kids, they're good kids. We're busy. Like, they don't need to be in faith community with other believers and with other adults speaking faith into their life. Right? It's power that shows itself, when it shows itself in our faith, right? It's power that says we can make up our own version of what faith and commitment looks like. I can handle that, all right? My strength is enough. That's what power in your faith and mind says. My strength is enough. And our self-identity then is found in our power to define our own relationship with God. You and I get to decide what that looks like. That's power. Now, privilege is different. It can sometimes look the same, but it actually shows up in a different way. Privilege is involved when we think we deserve something because of who we are or from something in our past or how hard we've worked at it. Now, privilege is part of like the American conscience, right? We're hard workers. We get it done. We earn and we grab, right? And so privilege we're very, very familiar with, okay? Privilege is involved when we think, I should have gotten the promotion. Why? Because I deserve it. I worked hard for it. I'm better than him. I should have gotten the spot on the team. Why? Because I work harder. I'm better. I can't believe they got it. So privilege shows itself up in many areas of our lives because of something in our past that makes us deserving or something in our present that says, man, I work harder than that guy or that lady or that kid. Right? There's something about who I am and where I've come from that makes me deserve being ahead of others. You've, 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 had, you've experienced that. Right? Now, privilege shows itself up when, we, when it leads us to measure our faith based on things in our past. Did you come from a church-going family? You know, like grandma and grandpa, mom and dad went to church faithfully, and you're like, man, that's good. I'm good with that. That's good, that, that's good for me. 
Because God saw that, and it kind of like, you know, we inherited that, that good favor. All right? I've got 50 verses memorized in the Bible. Like, that's my past. I'm good. That, that, that makes me feel good. I work really hard at whatever level I want, and there's something in that past, something in my efforts, that gives me this connection with God. And so, so it actually, privilege in the church, it's, it's all over the place. Privilege in the church leads us to be very self-focused. I did, so I deserve. I did, so I believe we should do it this way. Like, I've been here so long, that gives me the right to have this or say that. Right? Privilege rears itself in our faith when it leads us to measure our faith based on the th- place that we've come from or how hard we're working toward the future. That's privilege. It says that my heritage is enough. Power says my strength is enough. I'll define it for myself. Privilege says, you know, what I've got going on right now is good enough. And here our faith identity is found in our past or current efforts to connect us to God. Power and privilege. So we're going to pick up the, the, the Bible, and I encourage you to open up to chapter 1 in Romans. If you have your Bibles with you, if you have the Bible app, bring that up on your phone, because you just kind of want to interact with that word, even though it's on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, we do have them at the hub. Just throwing paper clips around. Um, it, we do have them at the hub, so pick them up at the hub on your way out. They're free. We just want to put that in your hands. So Romans chapter 1, we're actually going to start in verse 16, then we'll kind of jump back, backwards. Here's what Paul says. He says, for I am not ashamed of the good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes. I am not ashamed of the good news. He says good news five times in chapter one alone. It's the central theme of the book, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. I am not ashamed for it's the good news about Christ. It's the power of God at work saving everyone who believes. So here's our big idea for today. It's going to be the thing we're going to come back to again and again. I am not ashamed. I encourage you to write that down. Maybe bring up a note. And if you take notes on your phone or if you never thought to, you can. Um, I encourage you to write that one down. I am not ashamed. So the question for Paul as it comes in 16 the question that pops into my mind is, where does this confidence come from in this man? I am not ashamed of the good news. Why? All right. Was it because Paul was a Roman citizen and super smart? Was it because Paul came from an elite class of Jewish teachers? Or was it something else? And no matter what it is, Can I have that? Can you have that confidence too? That's what Romans chapter 1 begins to open our eyes and our hearts to. So let's start with chapter 1 verse 1. All right, let's go backwards and find out where this confidence comes from. Chapter 1 verse 1, let's go. It says, This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach the good news. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets and the holy scriptures. This good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line. He's tapping back into Jewish heritage, all right, because he knows they are. The people who are reading us know that he knows they are. 
And he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So where does this confidence for you say, I am not ashamed. Why? Now, for the longest time up until recently, all right, I drove, up until this week, actually, I drove a 2003 Toyota Corolla. Uh, we've had it for 15 years, uh, 210,000 miles on it. The thing was falling apart, and I hated it, all right? It was, I, 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 for a while, I felt pretty confident about it. Yeah, you could hear me coming into the neighborhood from a quarter mile away, and you knew Nathan was coming home, all right? But, but I owned it, and it was fine, and it was, you know, it was whatever. Um, but, but that kind of, you kind of just say, no, I'm confident, like, this is my Corolla, all right? Now, the same may be true for you. Um, maybe a few weeks ago, uh, maybe you're 15, 15 year olds. I don't know if we have any in the room. Your mom and dad walked you down to the bus stop, right? All the way down. And you're like, I don't care. I'm not ashamed of this, all right? Because it just means that my parents love me more than the other kids' parents do, all right? <laughs> and you own it, all right? And, and you own that. Now, what happens is confidence, if confidence is eroded, it allows shame to infiltrate. And when shame begins to stir in you, you lose confidence, right? So when someone says to me, Hinkle, when are you going to get a new car? That thing's falling apart. It's a piece of junk. What I was once confident in, now you have planted a seed of shame in there, all right? It's just, and my confidence begins to erode with one comment. You know this. One comment can take us from a place of confidence to a place of shame. You can call it embarrassment. You can call it guilt. I don't care what you label it. It happens. If somebody says, dude, you're a weenie, your mom can't walk you down to the bus stop when you're a sophomore in high school, all right? Now, you never thought that, but when somebody says it to you, suddenly there's this little inkling of doubt. You're like, oh, oh crap, maybe, maybe she can't. Maybe that's makes me look like a dork. I don't know. I never thought it. It's a seed of shame, right? And so shame works its way in, and confidence is eroded because now I don't know for sure what's true, who I am, what's right. I don't know for sure. It's shame. And Paul was confident because he says, I am not ashamed. Why? Did you catch why? It says, because Jesus rose from the dead. I'm just going to play. That's it. That's the answer. Paul actually was an eyewitness to Jesus being very much alive, as was all of Jesus' disciples. And we're told 500 other people, eyewitnesses to Jesus was dead. And then three days later, he walked out of his grave alive. They couldn't explain it. They just believed it because they saw it with their eyes. Paul was one of these guys. Okay, so for Paul, Jesus' resurrection, we just saying, I believe that he rose again. Paul says, I do too, because I saw it. And that's the only good news I need. I believe it because I saw it. And that is good news. That's where his confidence came from. So now it has implications for the believers living in Rome. Jesus being alive has implications for Christians. And so he's going to get into that in verse 5. Here we go. He says, through Christ, Jesus, God has given us the privilege, there's that word, and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them. 
so that they will believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. So Paul says, yeah, we, we disciples who are now missionaries all over the Mediterranean Roman world, taking the name of Jesus to cities everywhere, do you know where that privilege came from? It came from God. It came straight from God, this privilege we have to know Jesus and to talk about him with other people, right? Privilege is what God has done for you. Listen, this is going to be a lesson to the Jewish Christians because that's not how they defined privilege. Privilege is about where you came from, what your past looked like, and how hard you were working. Privilege is not what God had done for you. Paul's redefining privilege. Privilege is what God has done for you. It's not your past. God doesn't care if your grandma went to church every Sunday. God doesn't care that you grew up in a Christian home. For you now, it doesn't really have much meaning. God doesn't care if you have a lot of Bible verses memorized. Okay, it's not about what your past looks like. It's not about the rules that you followed or the ones that you pretended to follow and had everybody else fooled, all right? It's not about what you've done it, it, for God. Whatever you believe in your lifetime, that you believe you've done for God, that is meaningless here in Romans. Because Paul says the privilege that you think that gives you, it does not. The only privilege, privilege you have comes from our Heavenly Father, and he gives you the right to know him through his son. That's privilege. Look what he says in verse 7. I am writing to all of you in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his own holy people. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Let me tell you what he says right there. He's talking, remember, there are two different groups in this mixed audience, Jewish Christians and Roman Christians. And Paul says, I don't care what color your skin is, who your daddy was, where he worked, and what social status your family has. I don't care that you're Jewish. I don't care that you used to worship pagan idols 10 days ago. What I care about you knowing is that God loves you. That God thinks very highly of you. That God loves you. And he's given you the privilege to know him through Jesus. I just sit on that for a minute. When God, our Father, looks at you, he does not see a past. He does not see mistakes or failures. He doesn't see all the good things you've done or the bad ones. When he looks at you, when our Heavenly Father looks at you, he doesn't ever, he's never had one bad thought about you. Never. He loves you deeply. And the implications of that, my friends, is good news. Verse 10. Paul goes on, he says, One of the things I always pray for is the opportunity, God willing, to come at last to see you. 
For I long to visit you so I can bring some spiritual gift that will help you grow strong in the Lord. When we meet together, I want to encourage you in your faith, but also I want to be encouraged by yours. Listen, I, I think pa Paul's recognizing something in there. These people need encouragement because he says, man, there, there's plenty of things in your life that you and I are not confident in. There are plenty of things that we're not confident in our relationships because we've seen those erode, haven't we? And especially some of our teenagers, like you go day to day with complete lack of confidence in who your friends will be at the end of that school day. We don't have confidence in our jobs. People lose jobs all the time. Companies close. We don't have confidence in our government. I mean, 2020 is going to be a crazy, people are going to lose their minds in 2020 as this election approaches. And confidence will be waning. We have anxiety. There's illness. There's stress in our families. There's a family past that still haunts you. There's a family present that haunts you. We make decisions that bring shame, guilt, embarrassments. We have lack of confidence in our self-worth and our purpose. And Paul says to us in this sea of uncertainty, Paul's like, listen, church, all right? You guys paying attention? Let me encourage you in your faith with this one thing. That God has strength and power He's pouring into your life. And it doesn't come from you. In fact, that's what real power is. It's what God is doing in you. See, not only did he just smack privilege in the face when he told the Jewish Christians, I don't care where you came from. I don't care what your last name is. And then he smacks the Roman Christians in the face and says, you won't have any power except that which God does in you. So now he's offended everyone, all right? Verse 13. He says, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to visit you what was prevented until now. I want to work among you and see spiritual fruit just as I have seen among other Gentiles. So he's talking to the Roman Christians now. His audience is mixed, but he's talking back and forth. For I have a great sense of obligation to people both in the civilized world, which the Romans would have considered themselves, and the rest of the world, everyone else as barbarians, to the educated world, the Romans saw them as educated, and to the uneducated, everybody else was stupid, all right? So I am eager to come to you in Rome, too, to preach the good news. Listen, there's implications for us here. This is Romans chapter 1. This is our first day into it, okay? But there's impl implications. And if we miss this, okay, then we will, we will be at a little bit of a loss for the rest of the book if we can't come back to this. If you miss it, you miss the heart of Romans. You miss the heart of Paul. You miss the heart of our good Father in heaven. There are two groups of people that are hearing this under the banner of the church of Jesus Christ, two different worldviews, two different groups of people. The Jews who consider their faith founded on their heritage and what they've done for God. And then you have the Romans who believe that their power is enough to carve out what a relationship with God looks like on their terms. Because that's power. So why is Paul so eager to speak the good news into this city? 
because power and privilege do not cut it. And we know that. Because some of us are in struggling marriages. And we've just kind of said to ourselves every morning we wake up, or maybe somebody who thought they were giving good advice gave and said, you know what, you just need to what? Power through it, right? You ever heard that? Just power through it. Power through this relationship that is just tearing your heart out. Power through the struggles right now. And the truth is, you can't. You're not strong enough, and you know it. We can't power through any of this crap. It's too hard. And I, and I know that there's people in the room that said, you know what, my faith is just going to look like there, there's this line of rules that I'm just, I, I, like, I can be good, I can obey rules up to this point, but then I just won't step over, and that will make me feel better. I remember my brother and I, you know, when we were teenagers, would talk about how, well, the Bible says you can't do this, but it doesn't say anything about doing this, 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 and this. So we kind of had decided when we were teenagers, the line we were going to just jump right over, right, and enjoy, because the Bible didn't specifically say you couldn't do this. And so that was just how, and that's how many of us live our faith. Well, as long as I just do this. And Paul says, it doesn't matter. You're horrible at keeping rules, even if that's what it took. Right? We've thought that we had it in the bag because of how hard we worked or how deserving we are. But you lost the job anyway. Or your friends walk away. We think that our past or our current situation gives us the right to something. Right? Or our power or our strength demands that we go and grab it. And if those things worked, we all would be in a much better place than we truly are right now today. Your religious actions and backgrounds are meaningless to God. The relationship that you think you can create with God and defined by on your own terms, there's no power there. The truth is, as you and I scrounge for more power and lean on power and privilege to get us through this life, we don't gain confidence. We actually gain shame. It's shame. Look what he says in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. And then verse 17. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. I love that in Acts chapter 28, um, Paul, uh, Luke, who traveled with Paul, is writing about this history of the church. In Acts chapter 28, Paul finally gets to Rome. The letter was sent, and a few years later, he actually gets there. And we're told that the ship lands, and Paul says, I walked the Appian Way, which was a 400-mile-long superhighway in, in Rome, leading all the way down the, to, you know, towards Greece and Egypt in the south, all the way up through Rome. And Paul says, I walked the Appian Way into Rome. And then I met some of the believers, the other Christians, these people that I had written to years ago that I longed to see. And I met them in the forum. And the Roman forum went right there in Rome. It was the center of culture, of government, uh, the politics. It was the center of Roman life, of Roman religion. And Paul is gathering there with believers, with leaders in the church, and Christians, men and women. 
And he's telling them, as he told them years ago in his letter, I'm not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And I know that we serve a leader who was crucified on a cross. And everything in Roman culture said, if you got yourself put on a cross, you had no social status, you had no honor, you were the lowest of the low. There was no power in that. And Paul says, I don't care. I'm not ashamed. I just walked hundreds of miles up from the coast up this super highway. And I'm not ashamed of this gospel that is denounced in every corner of the empire. I don't care. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed because I believe. And why did he believe it? Because he had seen Jesus alive. He says, I am not ashamed. Now, eventually, Paul will be executed in this city. He will be led through in chains through the Roman Forum and off to what we, history tells us, to be beheaded. But not before he got to scream out loud with his own voice, as he did by his hand in the letter to the Romans, I'm not ashamed because my identity is in Jesus and I believe in him. That's all I need is to know that I am his son and I believe in him in him. You don't have to be uncertain about your place in this family. You are a son and daughter of God. You don't have to lean on your own version of faith. That only leads you to be a slave more and feel no freedom in your faith journey. You don't have to be uncertain as to whether or not you've tried hard enough or obeyed the rules good enough. You can have absolute confidence. You and I, Romans chapter 1, you and I can have absolute confidence in the gospel. Jesus died so that you and I could be reunited with our good Father in heaven. And that's the only good news we need. So we're going to go into a time of reflection. And it's actually going to be really simple. I say reflection because I want us just to sit on a truth here. It's actually going to be something that we're just going to repeat back together. Paul opens Romans chapter 1 with saying, I, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle, to preach the good news. We're going to say something similar. Now, I want you to say this only if you believe it. And that, not, so that's not going to be everybody. That's okay. I want you to say this if you want to believe it. God can work with anything. He will work with anything. But I'm, you're going to insert your name in here. You're going to, I'm going to say, Nathan, a slave of Jesus, chosen by God to be his son, sent to live in and preach the good news. That's who we are. That's all we need. So we're going to say that. I'm going to count to three. You're going to put your name in there. You're going to put son or daughter in. And you're going to say this with me. Okay, you ready? One, two, three. Nathan, a slave of Jesus, chosen by God to be his son, sent to live in and preach the good news. Say it again. Say it again. One, two, three. Nathan, a slave of Jesus, chosen by God to be his son, sent to live in and preach the good news. Amen.